Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena and today our guest has had roles in the French Ministry of Defence, UK Ministry of Defence and the Royal Marines before founding a consultancy that supports businesses to become more effective and improve their culture and performance. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Chris Payton to the podcast. Hello, Chris. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, Serena. Lovely to be here. Thank you. Just to kick us off, can you tell me a bit about your path to founding and now, of course, working as the MD of Quirk Solutions? What does that journey look like? Uh, mostly accidental, <laughs> to be honest. So I was quite happily working within the Royal Marines. I, I hadn't really anticipated leaving, if, I, if I'm honest. And then through a bit of a rant that I sent back to a friend who asked me my view on an, on a, on an article, uh, and it was a Harvard Business Review article, uh, and I'd had a pretty bad day. So I wrote a bit of a rant. He really liked it, sent it away back to HBR, and we ended up getting published. And that raised a degree of interest, I suppose, around some of the things that I thought and, and uh, believed in. And then the next part of the jigsaw puzzle was actually being let down quite badly whilst I was serving and this article had come out in a degree of interest. Some people got in touch with me and one of whom I knew pretty well, was a good friend, still is a good friend, fortunately, and said, look, I've invested in a startup. We think it's got a lot of legs, but we don't really have a strategy or a plan. We just got the concept and we could really do with that. There's several of us that have invested in it. And we've had a conversation. I got to meet them all. And we'd like to offer you equal equity compared to our investments if you produce the strategy and the plan for us and then act as the ops lead, if you like, for running the business. So it's kind of tailor-made, right? No, there we are. I'm thinking about leaving now. There's people interested in what I'm doing. Up pops this perfect job. And then three days before I was due to leave the Royal Marines, one of the individuals ran off with the whole thing. Everybody's money, but most importantly, all of my time. So I'd invested six months whilst I was trying to get everybody out of Afghanistan and do the whole plan over the two years of doing this from 2010 to 2012. I've been slaving away at night time in my own time to produce this business plan and be ready to lead it. But all of a sudden, I had no means of paying a mortgage. And, you know, I could have potentially gone back to the Royal Marines and said, look, I know it's only three days away before I leave, but can you have me back? So instead, I went to some of the organizations that had asked me to do talks for them off the back of the article and said, if I come in to do some consultancy, are you interested? Fortunately, some of them said yes. And then I have just scrapped like heck since then for 10 years to to build us out to where we are now. I think it's very fortunate that that actually happened, to be honest, because I ended up in consultancy, which is probably the best possible fit for me as a person and as to how I like to live my life and the things that I find value in and find a purpose in. Although it was fairly traumatic at the time, actually, I regard it as being one of the best things to happen to me because it then led me into something that's the perfect fit for me as a person. 
And I feel like that's often the case in your journey or anyone's journey to ending up in the position that they're in now or whatever success that they come to. You often have to go through those sort of trials and tribulations. And you mentioned, of course, you were in the military and and serving. We've had quite a few podcast guests who are also ex-army people. And it seems that there is some kind of propensity for people who have been in the army or are ex-military to whatever extent to then go into business in some kind of way or to go into leadership. Do you think that there is something fundamental about business and about the army that means that very similar personality types perhaps go into the two? What do you think? Um, I mean, I, I don't think that necessarily military and former military people have anything to offer above and beyond what lots of other people have that have never had a military background. I think that the one thing that does stand out, I think for me, whether you go into, as you say, leadership development or consultancy or your leadership role in a large corporate or it's in security or whatever else it might be, I think the one thing that is common across all former military people, and I know it sounds really odd, is a genuine care and affection and love for the people around them that they work with. There's this sort of preconception, if you like, the military people are quite curt. They're, you know, they're quite obnoxious almost. They walk around barking orders and people blindly have to do what they what they do. But actually, you know, you only get to do the things that we used to have to do and face the situations that we used to have to face through a genuine solidity of team. And that is based on emotion and it's based on trust. So I think that it's those traits, empathy, being able to look at people's body language, listen to the things that aren't being said, as well as what is being said. You know, those are the traits that former military people pick up on very, very quickly because they had to in their former careers. So that definitely comes through, I think, as quite quite a strength around veterans and people employing veterans. They often get a lot more than they thought they were going to get. Yeah. And, you know, a common idea is that to be a great leader and and maybe something that someone would imagine transcends from the military to being a leader is that, you know, barking orders at people or having that sort of more conventional idea of, of leadership, which is sort of that micromanaging, headstrong kind of character. So it's interesting to hear you say that actually it's, it's more of the sort of quote unquote, soft skills of being able to really empathize with your team. What would you say is the most important characteristic a great leader could have? Well, certainly that empathy is the key thing for me. I think, you know, a genuine connection with all of the team members and trying to help the team members perform at the very best they can. You know, my view is to bring really good people into the organization and then get out of their way, frankly. So it's all about going around and whether there's something that emotionally they're struggling with right now or procedurally or a process or some sort of resource or whatever else it is, how can I unlock that for that person? How can I put in place something that then sets them free for the next bit that they want to go off and do? I think that's very important. I think patience and tolerance is hugely important in any leadership role. People are going to get things wrong. But rarely do people deliberately try and sabotage something. You know, 
they've generally made what they feel to be the best possible decision they could at the time with the information they had available to them. So actually being quite patient, being quite tolerant and being kind, essentially, is I think is, is quite important. And just anybody that makes a mistake feels it very deeply, particularly if it's been their own mistake and you haven't been saying to them, you've got to go and do this. And they're sitting there going, well, I don't really agree with this, but they go and do it anyway. Then they tell you afterwards, oh, well, you've got this wrong. It's their own mistake. They feel it very deeply. So you don't need to come down on them you know, hard because they're already beating themselves up. What you need to do is to help pick them back up, learn from where they've gone and what are we going to do now and what will we do next time we're we're faced by this. So those are two key elements, I think. Then the piece for me as well is listening, listening with fascination, you know, making sure that you are really listening hard to what people are saying. And as I said before, also what they're not saying. So you can pick up the subtleties and the nuances in between, understand where they are right now, because we're in quite a complex world right now. Complicated was the world we used to be in. And that complicated is the sort of thing that you can eventually resolve if you look at it closely enough, you know, with a bunch of people. Complex is really challenging because you've got so many different strands, so many different permutations. This is where this rise of this phrase wicked problems, you know, comes from. You know, where essentially wherever I pull on this, I've got no guarantee as to where it might go, what might happen. And each time I pull something, it causes a cause and effect that's changing something else. The only way you solve complex problems is through a really engaged and highly reliable team. And it's about using the diversity of thinking across that team. So that's the final piece for me, I think, about being a good leader is how do you empower? How do you delegate? How do you push the authority down to the information so that people are making decisions at the level of the information is coming into the organization rather than waiting for it to percolate all the way up in some sort of command and control style? I want to go back to your experience in the military and what that that was like for you. Um, I mean, it was an incredible you know, career. I did 18 years. And 18 years when across the world, we saw a huge range of different conflicts. So actually, I found myself in a lot of different conflict zones. Uh, I spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, was also in the Balkans and in the Caucasus and various other different, as we call them, theatres of operation and in in lots of different roles. So I I went from being in charge of everything, you know, from myself plus two other people, uh, you know, in this really small three-person team, a very long way from home, essentially doing quite specialist work, to running all the planning for all the operations for six and a half thousand people in Helmand province and creating the plans that you then pass across to the operational team and the operational team then getting into the real nuts and bolts of what's going to happen. And then you suddenly find yourself doing this strategic job in Whitehall and realising how the mechanics of that work with civil servants and politicians and the mechanics of government decision making and As you said, you know, I was lucky to have three years in Paris doing a a similar type of role, but within the French Ministry of Defence. Yeah, it was it was an incredible journey. And I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about different styles of leadership and types of leadership at different points in time, um, how to kind of dial up and dial down your approach so that when the opportunity presents itself, allowing the rest of your team as much latitude and as much empowerment as possible. 
you know, if, if I've got to try and pull together the strategy for how we get over 10,000 people out of Afghanistan plus 20,000 shipping containers worth of equipment over a two-year time frame, I can't be on top of every decision that's happening across that entire spectrum. So pushing that authority down to where the information is and allowing those decisions to be made is really important. But then if you're hiding under a bush in the middle of the, you know, some sort of conflict somewhere with only two other people, the decision making is quite a lot more immediate. So, yeah, it was a really formative point in my life, looking at different challenges, being faced with different challenges having to work with different people, different languages, different cultures, different approaches, different militaries from different nationalities, you know, it's some of the coalition work that we did. So just being able to recognize and celebrate and draw out the diverse skills that you get from that spread of people, I think is, you know, was, was something that I particularly really enjoyed. That's really interesting hearing you sort of speak about the difference between managing, you know, two people in a team and then going to manage a large group of people with something that is a really big task and important. For a lot of our listeners, you know, we hear it time and time again about the negative aspects of micromanaging, but how can a business leader sort of give their team or enable their team to to work in an effective way without micromanaging? And it's not easy, right? Because we've all been brought up with bureaucracy and bureaucracy has been in place since sort of like the mid 1890s, you know, in France, where it's first brought about. And, and it was absolutely needed at that point in time because there was basically chaos in most organisations. And so in order to, to, to bring efficiency and performance and effectiveness and things like that, you would have structure and policies and process and the way we go about things. And it's been in place for such a long time that actually it's very, very difficult to get away from it, particularly because essentially the people who are most affected by a loss of bureaucracy are leaders themselves. Because, well, what do I do if, we, if we're allowing people to, to do these different things? So it becomes quite a challenge. And you know, there are fantastic examples out there of where you enable a team and they, they do incredibly well. You know, there's, a, there's an organization called Birdsorg, it's a social health care provider out in the Netherlands. And there's something like 15,000 strong as a company, but they only have about 80 people in the central core. And all of the rest of the organization is in teams of 12. But those teams of 12 are responsible for their own PL, their own budget, their own business development, their own recruitment, their own sharing of best practice against the other teams of 12 through a dashboard. And so essentially, the Birdsorg have allowed all of these teams their own head to go and do what they think is important and create their own little mini culture within that team of 12. And what's really interesting is that they have something like a, just over a 30% higher client satisfaction rating than any of their comparable competitors. But they have 50% less staff churn. And in a world that we're in now, where people are shifting from job to job, if it doesn't suit them, if they don't like it, hanging on to talent and talent retention is vital. So allowing people that latitude is obviously working for them. And they have something like a 65% lower central overhead compared to most of their competitors. So they're operating more efficiently with better margins, if you like, in terms of finances, but with better retention of their people and delivering a better result. And this is where you can get to know the nub of your question is a really difficult one, which is how do business leaders get to that point? Because it's so entrenched the way that we've all been brought up to operate in these ways. 
to be honest. I think it's about getting some support to the organization because the organization trying to do it purely by themselves will find it quite hard. So coaching and things like that for some of the senior leadership, helping them develop some of these skills that they're going to need. But also you've got to work across the whole of the rest of the organization. You can't run leadership and development courses for the leadership and then suddenly expect them to lead in a different way to an organization. And and if you like, the rest of the organization, the rest of the team who are suddenly bumped into this different style, this different approach and go, oh, hang on a minute. You know, it's like all change. You've got to bring the whole organization on that change journey. You've got to educate people at the very most junior levels. What is going to happen? Why? How we're going about things? What we're doing differently? You've got to work with what's often called the frozen middle to help turn them into change agents and to drive the change that's going to come through. And then coaching the really senior people on how to go about this shift and you know generating the trust, if you like, that's required to make it all happen. So it's not easy. In short, it takes time. And people often benefit from a degree of external support on it. On the subject of bureaucracy and, and those bureaucratic conventions, as well as leadership conventions, obviously the pandemic has, has completely restructured businesses and the way teams and organisations run, as well as the processes within them. Do you think it has really allowed the space and creativity for businesses to, I guess, rethink the way that they're structuring their organizations um, and and those bureaucratic kind of processes? Uh, So I'll pick up on a couple of points in that question. Has it allowed them to think about it? I'd like to think so, but I'm not entirely sure. I think that lots of organizations have found themselves operating in a different way because they had to. They haven't necessarily put a lot of thought behind it. And it's now that they're sitting there and thinking, well, this is kind of thrown the ball up in the air a little bit. What might we do now? There's those who are desperate just to get back to the way that they used to work. And actually, a lot of their workforce are desperate to get back to the way that they used to work and haven't enjoyed it. There's others that have, you know, really enjoyed what's happened and obviously now got shifts to different ways of operating certain, certain days working from home. It's actually created some really interesting developments around the four-day working week and certain organizations shifting to a four-day week rather than a five-day week. I think that for me, the unexpected consequence and benefits, I always like to look at things positively, that's kind of like my nature, the unexpected benefit of doing an amount of hybrid working or virtual working isn't so much, oh, this is interesting, could we restructure, could we do this in a different way? It was the amount of trust that suddenly started to build up because organizations weren't able to suddenly be on top of everybody all the time and having those command and control type of leadership. People had to be trusted to do their own thing in their own way. And I think that that build of trust has been significant in supporting a lot of organizations. So when you're talking about are they thinking about it, I don't think they're going into that enough. I don't think they've realized that actually they've got this massive opportunity in front of them right now, which is a more trusting organization that feels more connected. The relationships are a lot stronger. And what they could do right now is start to draw on the ideas and the diversity of thinking from across the organization because of that sense of trust, that sense of bond. And if they're not careful, they'll miss that opportunity and they'll go back to, right, well, we now a senior leadership team 
the five of us in this organization need to sit down and decide how we might adapt and develop using a bit of hybrid or not. That's that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to talk to a broad coalition drawn from across the organization that means that you're going to take forward a whole bunch of people, you know, a complete vertical slice, not just leading from the top down. I think that's that's really interesting. With your work with businesses, do you identify or have you seen a sort of common mistake made across, you know, most most businesses? I wouldn't say it's mistakes, but if you like common blockers that we often see is organizations who are able to scale their products and services pretty much at will and there is broad appetite from their customer base or their market to have those products and services but they're unable to scale their people you know the products can go out the door but they're really struggling to deliver them at the rate they could and grow as much as they could because of scaling their people and it's scaling their people right the way down through the organization as i previously mentioned that the tendency is to focus on specific levels and give training to specific people and actually just like anything you know if you want to scale the organization you've got to scale the people so that means starting with talent development programs for for people really quite junior in the organization and relatively new to the organization maybe and doing it from an organizational perspective so i think that piece is really important so that everyone can start to step up and you can start to bring those capabilities to bear so i think that's certainly one element i think the other element that organizations find difficult is one we've already spoken about which is that empowerment and delegation how do i enable a team to go away and have the freedom to operate without oversight really in a framework that i've set and lots of leaders really struggle with that because if they set the right framework if they set the right size of framework with the right kinds of parameters then that essentially represents their level of risk that they're prepared to take so then because you've bounded and you've defined the risk, and if something goes wrong, it's within a risk envelope that you're comfortable with, then you can allow those teams to get off and, and operate and bring out all the brilliance behind it and all the ideas that are going to come through from it. So now instead of five people thinking in a senior leadership team, you've now got 130 or 200 people across the organization thinking, and that becomes much more powerful, much more innovative, much more creative. You're much more in touch with your customer base or your client base, however that is defined for whatever organization, you know, because the individuals who deal with those customers on a day-to-day basis right at the very forefront are part of this decision-making, a part of taking things forward. So enabling those frameworks is something that I think lots of businesses really, really struggle with. And to be honest, just stopping treating humans as resources and allowing them to do their best and to come in to deliver their best. I think all too often it's a case of, well, this is how the organization functions. This is what we do. These departments do this. And it's just, you know, that's how we operate. But everybody wants to come in to make a bit of a difference and to feel valued and to feel important and to feel that they've, you know, created and contributed. That's what we're all like as, as individuals. And there's great examples where you can draw that out. There's a, a firm in, in the US called Nucor who manufactures steel, and they are very much empowered across the different sites and the different production areas, you know, across the whole organization, very much independent little fiefdoms, if you like. And they had a situation where the crucible in one of their plants, you know, that smelts down the steel had broken and essentially they needed a new one. 
And so it wasn't a central procurement function that went away and took out a tender what was required and took the bids and selected the winning bid and did all the contracting. It was the team that actually use it. And, you know, all of us can't help it, but have a perception in our head, a stereotype in our head of the sort of person that pours molten metal from a crucible into the rest of the steel plant, right? About the type of individual they are. But those individuals were given the task of, well, you go away and decide how you want to, to replace this. So they took it out to market, weren't very impressed with everything that came back. So they then went off as a team and started to go visit your local universities and speak to metallurgists. They ended up designing their own crucible, took that to market, and it ended up being a tenth of the cost of the original quotes that were coming in and was vastly more effective and efficient than anything they'd had before because they are the people that know what they need. And so it's that empowerment, if you like, and that ability to trust and to delegate and to say to people, look, as a senior leadership team, we understand productivity and how this plant works and everything else, and we can do this crucible. But actually, do you know what? Let's hand it across to you. Let's see what you come up with. Let's trust you to really contribute. And Nucor have grown by, I think it's 35% in a market that's shrunk by 40% over the last four years. So that's an extraordinary demonstration of how powerful this can be. Something that's come up in the podcast quite a few times is this idea of really empowering your team, but also not being afraid to realize or admit that your team, most of the time, will know more than you in about certain things. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, that, that vulnerability, if you like, or authenticity is key to success. We don't know everything about everything. And yet there's this facade that fortunately now is starting to drop from lots of business leaders that we need to present the, of course, yes, I'm all over this and I know all about this and this is what we're going to go and do. You know, if you turn around to me 10, 12 years ago and say, right, you've now got to get, you know, 11,000 people out of Afghanistan. It would be utterly insane for me to turn around and go, yes, of course, I know exactly how to do that. I've got a clue. So actually being authentic and going, right, how do we do this? What do we do? It is really important. But that authenticity and that vulnerability doesn't just create better ideas from the team and better outcomes. It creates better outcomes because of the trust. People see that you are prepared to share something of yourself, to share the fact that you, know, you need their support. And that creates a stronger bond. And as soon as you've got that stronger bond, you know, you're into a much, much better place. Yeah, I think that vulnerability is, is, you know, really stands out as a word that many leaders can try and embody, especially moving away from what we were speaking about before in terms of those, you know, conventional ideas of being the really headstrong micromanaging manager that many leaders feel that they have to fit into to, I guess, have respect and efficiently manage a business, but but really that's that's not the case. It's not always the case, but like we like we said earlier on, that you know there will be, and this is where I think it's important to understand that you know is you, you might need to dial up and dial down your leadership according to the situation. And so you know if we end up in something unexpected like the pandemic, or if all of a sudden there's a massive disruptor comes onto your particular market. Or, I don't know, some sort of legal action comes through, whatever else it is. When you are faced with that very visible, present threat, that is the point at which actually leaders start to take more of a grip and need to. And the rest of the team want to see that at that point in time. If leaders still at that point in time are going, well, hey, we don't know what to do about this. So, what should we do? 
then the rest of the team are feeling like, well, this is a bit unfair. You're now essentially shuffling a very clear and present threat to my future employment onto me. You know, they want to see somebody stepping up at that point in time and being quite decisive and being quite on the money. So I don't think people should be afraid to not necessarily micromanage, but to be be quite on the detail and quite on the money if the situation allows it. The challenge for some people is the what I often call leadership lag, where they've gone from a high intensity type of situation. So they've had to dial up their leadership and become quite on top of their things. And now the situation is shifting, but they've remained in that former leadership style of being quite directive and quite in control. And they've not recognized that, no, actually, now I really need to start shifting across that leadership lag, if you like, is really important to be aware of. That's really important, especially the idea of being able to adapt your leadership style. It's not just being the same type of leader constantly. It's really kind of molding yourself to each situation. And I think particularly something that many, if not all businesses are thinking about and and business leaders are thinking about is the possibility of a recession and, you know, changes in society, even with, you know, consumers spending less money and, you know, disruptions to supply chains. You know, many businesses have just recovered from the pandemic. And so the idea of having to deal with another really big shift potentially is probably quite daunting. What advice would you give to a business leader and businesses about navigating, preparing and dealing with this? Yeah, I think uncertainty and volatility um, are two of the most difficult things for for organisations to deal with. If you can see what the future holds and it's not particularly helpful, but you know what's going to happen, then you can adapt. When you don't know what the future holds and you can't really predict it, that makes it really challenging for people. And psychologically, it can make it quite difficult as well. People feel really uncomfortable and start to find themselves not enjoying work and not enjoying coming to work and being at work because you know the stress of not knowing is, is the real challenge. And dealing with uncertainty and dealing with volatility and things like that, I mean, yes, we could fall back on some of the things we've already spoken about, diversity of thinking, and how do we bring in that diversity of thinking and create a psychological safe space for that to happen in. That's easier said than done. So, you know, how do you go about it? Well, Actually, one of the easiest ways to go about it is is gaming and pressure testing and and doing these different types of gaming techniques. And there's lots and lots and lots out there and all sorts of resources that people can, can go to, different books that they can refer to. The techniques essentially create the safe space for people to contribute. And I know it sounds odd, but if you just kind of sit there and are trying to work out what might happen in the future, it's unlikely you will. And all that happens is that you're wasting time and losing time. Actually, a better way to deal with this is to start to game different scenarios, start to game different potential outcomes, because then at least people feel like, well, we're doing something. We're looking at this. We're examining this. If we were to lose this client in South Wales because you know they will shut down because of the recession, they'll no longer come to us. What would we do? How would we go about that? What would we be trying to do to preempt that? Where would we be going elsewhere? And all of those sorts of decisions, discussions, you know, will really help draw out ideas about what you could do. 
it enhances people's emotional wellness and well-being because now they feel like well, we've we've had a little bit of look at this but it also starts to build in a nimbleness to the organization and an agility because if they've been discussing lots of different solutions then even if the one that you've come up with still doesn't work people can switch to something else and it starts to get people thinking in that nimble agile way if you like and i, I use agile slightly guardedly because i know it, it has different connotations from a consultancy perspective to the english perspective but that's essentially what we're looking for we're, to deal with a recession to deal with uncertainty you need to make your organization more nimble and one of the ways of doing that is gaming now what might happen and what might you do so it's often called bringing your decisions forward these are the sorts of decisions we are likely to have to face in the future so let's have a look at them now let's simulate those as if they were for real happening now and you can do it through things like edward de bono's six thinking hats or red team blue team gaming or gary clyde's pre-mortem there's all sorts of different techniques that you can use there's tons of them out there but bringing that decision making forward now i think is really key because you're never going to predict the future but why not have a look at what might happen and what you might do so that you at least stand a chance of adapting when the situation strikes you and would you say it's really important for businesses to kind of start doing that as soon as possible the comment i often get from anybody who's done any gaming with any agency or done it themselves internally is we really wish we'd done this sooner because if you like the slightly pernicious problem is this sunk cost fallacy if you're not careful organizations will tend to go well we think this is where the future lies and therefore we're going to go down this particular route of bringing in some sort of new software or IT system let's say to deal with that and when you get four or five months into that program you realize it's not really what you wanted and it's not really delivering we've just had an exact example of that within my own company where we set out down a technology solution route that we were really happy with and it's basically not quite worked but the sunk cost fallacy means that it starts to kick in that you then go well we've come this far surely we just keep going to make it work and actually there's a point at which you no longer are helpful in holding your nerve you're a lot better going stop stop it cut it let's go somewhere else and do something else and the gaming and the gaming right now and you know as soon as people possibly can will really help to avoid those issues where you know if we're in a recession if customers and clients and b2b you know are essentially reducing their spend you do not want to be spending any money that is wasted you've got to make yourselves as efficient as possible and gaming yes is absolutely a way to make sure that those margins are protected so even if you spend a lot of time doing one thing and then it ends up not working do you feel like it's still time well spent because you've still learned quite a lot from realizing that that wasn't the right thing to do so there's a, there's a bit of a misconception that gaming takes a lot of time and effort it doesn't have to you know we did some work for a very large german automotive manufacturer and took them through quite a large launch of a new vehicle for them and we ran a game for them for just 2 hours and yet they ended up with something like i think it was 34 actions that they needed to take to improve their plan as a result of it these are obviously you know top of their game in terms of what they do and how they go about it there weren't any show stoppers i guess but there's lots of fine polishing that meant that their plans stood a greater chance of success 
but it was just two hours. You know, these don't have to be long, drawn out things that last over days with people coming in from all over the world. You know, we were speaking earlier on about the benefits of what we've just been through with the pandemic. You can now get people participating virtually. You can do things through technology that previously weren't essentially able and open to us. This, this can be quite a short, punchy, really impactful use of people's time just to keep dipping in and out and going, what about this? What about that? And you're not losing people's valuable time for business as usual. What I find interesting about what you're saying is that even without these sort of really big, you know, unprecedented events that impacts businesses, so, you know, the pandemic or various other geopolitical situations that is happening right now, I mean, businesses need to be able to adapt to their surroundings anyway, because society and culture, consumers are always changing anyway. So do you feel like this is just a good thing to implement into a business anyway? Um, uh, yes, essentially, I'm a big fan of a big fan of gaming. We've been doing it for 10 years, but lots of organizations, lots of other consultancies have, have been helping organizations do it for a long, long time way before the pandemic or conflicts or geopolitical change and changing to, to trade relationships as a result of what's going on right now. You know, gaming has always been a very powerful piece and a very powerful aspect. The military religiously game a plan every time before they step out of the door to make sure that it's fit for purpose. And I think that all organisations should be doing this because it's also a way in which they can enhance all sorts of things. It's not just about testing the plan. And this is the mistake that I think some organizations make is that they presume that they have to wait until they have a really highly polished plan to game it and to test it to see how it survives. The key problem with that is that now everybody that created that plan are emotionally attached to it. So when you show that it's not necessarily going to work as well as they'd hoped, they hate you for it. <laughs> so actually, you know, gaming quite early, but also bringing in wider, diverse thinking. So I've seen organizations do gaming where they bought in clients, where they bought in suppliers. So they're essentially saying, here's where we're thinking of going. So you can use gaming quite early on in your strategic, if you like, planning cycle. And you can use games as a way of navigating to the best possible solution. So again, when we're talking about recession, navigating through recession, bringing in clients and saying, this is where we think we're going to play. This is the sorts of things we think we're going to be delivering and getting the very real reaction from clients as part of that game, as part of that psychological safe space of suppliers being able to contribute to where they are. Regulators, even if you're in a regulated industry, you know, there's all sorts of facets that can be brought into this. That means that the organization that isn't using the same brains as it always uses to come up with the same solution. But you're also building those relationships. You're enhancing those social connections between you and the different parts of your business ecosystem. And that starts to make a massive difference to internally within the organization, but also between them and their wider ecosystem. You bring up this idea of how it's important to be resilient to you know, your surroundings, but also be resilient in the sense that you're willing to accept when an idea 
isn't working because I can imagine, you know, many people would get really emotionally attached to something that they've been thinking about and working on and, and constructing for a long period of time. And, and then to be able to have the strength to let it go and, and kind of come to terms with the fact that it's not working does take um, a level of resilience, but in a different kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And it all plays to our different biases, right? There's a, there's a huge amount of different biases that we're that we're subject to. But loss aversion is quite a key one. You know, we don't like to lose. And anchoring bias, you know, we're getting attached, really attached to the first thing that seems to seems to work and being convinced that that will work. We must have been right in the first place. You know, then you get confirmation bias starts to kick in where you're only looking for the information that supports the decision that you've already made and you are willfully blind to all of the information that is telling you the opposite so learning to to deal with our bias and again that's how where gaming can kick in but it's where the diversity of thinking also really starts to help and bringing in those wider individuals that we were just speaking about because they are less affected by the immediate bias that we will all have from doing the same thing each day in our own businesses but yeah, it's still difficult, you know, right? I mean, I mentioned earlier on that, you know, that we've suffered a point where actually we've had to cut something or we're looking at cutting something. And it's, it is a difficult decision to make. It doesn't feel nice. It doesn't feel good, you know, and you still are convinced that maybe there's a way in which you can make it work. So, you know, I, I'm not about to try and stand here and preach that it's easy because it's not. I'm finding it really hard right now to make decisions that I'm having to make right now. That's really interesting. And I know our listeners will take something away from that, especially in preparation for what the economic situation is likely to look like over the next month or year. So that brings us to the last segment of the podcast. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs answers to. And this question is from 97. And they ask, Am I a bad employee or am I at the wrong place? I don't think there's any such thing as a bad employee um, because, you know, we all want to do well. We all want to contribute in the right way and make a difference. And we want to help and support the organisation. Very few people come to work to deliberately do a bad job that day. I think that there potentially are some maybe some challenges around leadership in that organisation. It might be that that individual isn't at the wrong place, they're at the right place, but they just need to try and work out a way in which to engage with the leadership and get the leadership to recognise that they might want to operate in a different way. And that's avoiding things like we should, going to somebody's boss and saying we should do this. You know, that boss, that leader is going to sit there and go, oh, hang on a minute, who's this telling me what to do? So trying to draw it through in more subtle language around, you know, I've been looking at other businesses, you know, some interesting ideas, you know, we could have a look at some of these or let's explore some of these or can I have the opportunity to go explore some of these and bring you back some thoughts. There's ways in which you can approach it. But ultimately, you know, I'm afraid that, yeah, if, if none of that really works and if this particular individual knows that the leaders that they're working to and the hierarchy that they're working to just wouldn't engage with that at all, then yes, maybe they are at the wrong place. And this is where actually right now, there's a huge benefit to people who aren't feeling happy where they are, who aren't content where they are, because the employment market is, is just going through the roof with opportunities and with people shifting and moving. 
and it's beholden on organizations to adapt to hang on to that talent so i would say that whoever this is you know they've they've got a, a real opportunity to either try and shape their organization to improve that they're in if they want to stay there through dialogue or to jump and go somewhere else and do something else you know my kids are fully grown up now in a way but they've done all sorts of different jobs over the last few years and shifted around from different place to different place doing very different thing in different sectors why not why not go and develop skills be at different places meet different people build different relationships learn different things that's i think is a huge benefit to any organization that that future employee then goes to because they've got a much broader skill set that's a really great answer what makes a great business leader to you <laughs> i guess we kind of touched on it earlier on you know about the you know the, somebody that's empathetic somebody that listens somebody that genuinely cares and even loves the people that, that work for them I know because we're very British at times, we find that word a bit odd, but I think it's really important and really powerful. Just being a nice person is, is I think, what makes most good leaders, but also one with a strategic vision, with an understanding about where the organisation should probably operate. So if you're at that higher level, I think allowing the team to come up with the how, whilst you express the what and the why, this is what we need to be thinking about and why we need to be thinking about it because I'm horizon scanning and can see where things might be going in the future and then leaving the team to come up with the how. I think that's that makes a really good leader as well, focusing on the things that will bring benefit to the team, which is that judgment, that strategic thinking and that higher level thinking rather than getting drawn into we're 30% behind on production on line A today. You know, there's no point in getting involved in that because the people that are in that online A and are behind on production know why that's happening, know what's going on, know how they ought to fix it. We're much better off looking further ahead and saying, is there a future for that particular product that comes off line A in 10, 15 years time? Because if not, what are we going to do about that? And how are we going to adapt? Yeah, I think those are some some really important qualities and kind of one that we hear time and time again, which seems like the crux of it is is really being a kind person, as sort of simple as it sounds, is really being able to, to relate to your team, essentially, and understand them. Finally, do you have any final words for our listeners? Um, I don't think so. I think we've given them more than enough of having to put up with me talking away. But I guess just be confident in themselves, whether they are a leader or whether they're part of an organisation. Have confidence in themselves, have confidence that what they do is going to be meaningful, it's going to be helpful, is important. And you know, if somebody's not valuing that, wherever it is, then can ask the question why and move forward from that but don't doubt yourselves get out there be confident enjoy what you do and find the place that really fits for you i'm very lucky that i stumbled through accidents and the chain of events into the place that's perfect for me and i absolutely love it i absolutely love it my biggest challenge is trying to stop working most of the time because i love it so much and so that uh, that's an entirely different topic about burning yourself out but yeah, be confident and enjoy it.